0: set it up for just a second the
1: biggest part (laughs) the biggest thing so which is that the stage is dominated by a pool it's a pool (laughs) Uh, that's the set (laughs)
0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to No Script, the podcast. This is Jacob Mann Christensen.
1: And I am Jackson Nikolai.
0: And this is another unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. Today, we are talking about Mary Zimmerman's play Metamorphosis. This play is is i think important for me to say up front uh it's going to sound like i'm very biased and that's only because i'm very biased i absolutely (laughs) love this play it might be my favorite play of all time it is my (laughs) i I feel like if i got to direct it that would be like the crowning achievement of my directing career i i'm just so excited to talk about i don't know where we're gonna go or what's gonna happen there's so much in this play uh, and I'm, i'm just thrilled to get the chance to talk about it (laughs)
1: <laughs> yes, indeed. Our, this is a play that I read, and uh, imagine we both interacted with it in college. I don't know if you read it before, but that's where I interacted with it for the first time, so I'm very excited to talk about it as yeah, well.
0: Yeah, uh, when I graduated high school, I asked my drama teacher for like a list of 10 scripts I should read before college, and this was one of those, and then, yeah, I interacted with it again in undergrad and lots of times since, and uh, I've had a thrill reading it in the past couple of days just for this conversation as well. All right, so we do, uh, you know, we do a little bit of a background on kind of the history of the production. So th- this place sort of started as a project, as many great plays do, produced by Northwestern University, where Mary Zimmerman is a teacher, um, and that was just called Six Myths, is where it was originally produced there. Then it's sort of, you know, fully produced version of what the script looks like now was produced by Looking Glass Theater Company in Chicago in 1998. It moved over to New York in 2001 and played off-Broadway and then uh, played on Broadway after that at the Circle in the Square in 2002. So had a long and storied history after that um, at different places in Berkeley, Seattle, um, Los Angeles, lots of those West Coast productions. The set designer for lots of the professional productions has been a guy named Dan Osling, who interestingly, as part of my undergrad, I got a chance to interview him. Um, One of our professors knows him, I guess, um, and set me up so I could interview him for a class. Um, So I got to interview him about the process of working on the set design for this play, which is, you know, a really unique set design opportunity. I'm sure we'll talk about that.
1: Yeah. And, and just kind of, we'll, 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 shortly synopsize it as well. This is one of the, uh, kind of easier ones to synopsize, but also, you know, challenging in its own way, but it is a very episodic sort of, uh, story structure. So we're getting, um, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, nine different myths. Um, from the uh, Greek tradition of their mythology. Does that and, include uh, the myth
0: of Narcissus? Because that one's kind of uh, included as a sub and one, that so it might be ten, then.
1: Yeah, 10, ten total myths, and if you include Narcissus. Um, and uh, we're, we're kind of presented in them in this cool, acroni- a- acron- mm, anachronistic way. There we go. Uh, kind of juxtaposed with some modern uh, surroundings. But we get ten core ones. You get uh, the myth of Midas, the myth of, you know, we're going to be testing some great uh, Greek pronunciation today and not getting and it right. we're going to
0: absolutely butcher it, so...
1: <laughs> yeah, so just <laughs> prepare yourself. Be prepared. <laughs> <laughs> so you got Midas, you got Alcyone and Saix. We have uh, Erescaton, Ares- is what I'm going to say right now. Uh, the Orpheus and Eurydice myth, Pomona and Vertumnus. The And inside of that one, you have the myth of Mira. You have, as we said, Narcissus and uh, the myth of Phaeton. Phaeton, um, uh, Eros and Psyche, and then Basis and Philemon, and then we get uh, also a return to Midas at the end of the story as well.
0: Yeah, which is and, uh, which is riveting, and and they're all. This is sort of a retelling of Ovid's. Uh, different myths from the from Ovid's poem, Metamorphosis. That's where it captures its title and where kind of the source material is. You know, there's so much to talk about in this play and just because there's so many different stories and they come from such rich source material. We'll just have to leave some stuff out. So I suspect probably we will not talk much about the source material of Ovid's poem and, you know, how she adapted these stories into their current form. That may come up a little bit, but that's yeah. probably will not be the focus of this conversation. It could absolutely be a focus of a different conversation uh just probably won't yeah. be this one today. There's a lot there, but we just have so much to cover on this one that we probably will not do a lot of talking about Ovid's original versions of the myths.
1: Yeah, like the conversions over or, or the 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 ways that she changed them because there it is interesting and I agree that should be another conversation sometime or at least a blog post about like just how she switched the myths around from their kind of more classic stuff and the subtle changes she made. Yeah, and, and but, where uh, she
0: even, like, used the poetry, too. Some of the, some of this yeah. is poetry from an adaption— or not an adaption, a translation of the Ovid myths, so— that's obviously mm-hmm. very cool as well, and then you know, there's a whole further discussion about what myths she chose to use versus not use. I mean, Ovid's poem <laughs> is just this huge epic, so it, there's yeah. there's ton, there's maybe double, triple, quadruple the number of myths in that poem than there are in this play. So it'd be interesting someday to sort of examine her choices in myth too.
1: And and and. I think. Uh, do you have a way that you want to kind of lead into this? I have a way to go in, but I it's. I think this play is uh, very. It's very episodic, as I said in nature, and we're not going to be talking about a linear plot in this one. I think we'll just be kind of talking about the myths um, as as we kind of think about them and go yeah, through I, them.
0: I agree. I, I wondered too. Is it better to try to dive in by talking about individual myths first, and then kind of get a sense of the overall picture, or is it better to kind of talk about how the myths are tied together in the overall picture, and then and try to pick out specific examples. Um, the sort of the one really formulaic question that I, I wanted to bring to you, Jackson, is um, you know, there's just not a lot of consistency among the different myths in storytelling. Um, the the choices of how to tell the story uh, just in terms of basic structure of the story, basic conventions of what kind of narrators there are, um, basic conventions of staging really vary wildly among this and the uh, the sort of meta plot too, which you maybe would imagine for this kind of a play is almost non-existent. Um, there starts with some sort of a small framework for the first couple stories that dissolves into almost entirely by the third story into yeah. almost no framework. So I'm interested in that, Jackson. In um, well, how how did the differences in the way the myths are told capture you?
1: Yeah, it 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 definitely kind of jars you, but it also makes you pay attention. The one of the kind of cool things about this experience is they're dealing with stories and themes that are ancient. So you you walk into it feeling this kind of gravitas with the words that they are using and the themes that they are wrapping the stories up in. But then it is. Uh, the The way they're told then, via you know, sometimes the 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 first set of narrators um, are. Actually, that's the second set of narrators. But they're laundresses. They're telling a story while washing clothes in in the massive pool in the center. That actually, we actually, yeah, about we eventually. should
0: we should pause maybe yeah. and, and uh, talk
1: about that yeah, first let's, before <laughs> let's, let's else. set it up for we just a second. We the biggest part, <laughs> <laughs> the biggest thing, so, which is the that the set. stage is dominated yeah. by a pool. It's a
0: pool. <laughs> uh, that's the set is a pool, and then some deck area around the pool. And then, a, yep. like sort of a higher area, she calls for a painting of a sky. That's kind of that's kind mm-hmm. of stuff your design team probably would figure out exactly how you wanted to use that. But there's sort of I, I sort of imagine three playing areas. You might correct me if you imagine something different, Jackson. The sort of higher area of the sky, and she maybe even calls for one more higher area above the sky. Um, but yeah. I, in my imaginings of the staging, that did not play a huge role for me for sure. There's one upper area, then there's the area around the deck. That is the deck, sorry. The deck around the pool, which is a staging area, and then the pool itself, which is maybe Mm -hmm. the primary staging area.
1: Yeah, and really the only other scenic element that is uh, asked for in the script is a large chandelier um, hanging, which uh, I I didn't see that. That would be an interesting thing, too, to think about for the imagery of some of those final scenes. But yeah, I, I like... The, the The times that people use that upper area, the so not the deck, not the pool, but the upper, they're almost I believe that they, they are always gods who use that upper area. And they or, or are potentially
0: maybe narrators. I, I couldn't quite tell. It seemed like the yeah. notes at the beginning of the script called for the gods who aren't directly involved in the action of the scene who are you know, more godlike are supposed to be sort of maybe even above the sky um above the upper yeah. area. I sort of imagine them like you did. I think in the upper area, Um, and that was sort of a non-human area, maybe for narrators or uh, um, or the gods.
1: Yeah, as they kind of there's a number of scenes where the gods are watching the deeds of the humans below, and that's at least where I tend to imagine them being is kind of in that upper area. But then much of the play happens in the water. and that is, I mean, water is a really important part of Greek mythology in general. They were a seafaring nation a lot. And so water is a really important theme. But I mean, the way that the the, the telling of these myths get a whole other flavor when you're actually standing in water the whole time. And it's bookended by the water as well. The water is such a, a primary theme. What do you think, like, why, why uh, specifically did she choose that kind of dominant scenic element to define the play pretty much for the for the entirety of it
0: Uh, yeah i mean if we if we move beyond the just sort of the easy conventional idea that it's just sort of interesting and evocative to stage things in a pool and we move into sort of the realm of theme and connection um You know, the beginning of the play is uh, sort of establishes this theme of change. The original narrator, the first lines are the narrator praying to the gods for them to grant her sort of the. The ability to change form is what she calls for. It's, it's sort of unclear whether she means that in sort of a theatrical sense, like I need to play many characters to tell this story, or if she means it in more of like an evolution sense of sort of the the changing of times. And then just following that, that prayer to the gods, there comes out a scientist who talks about sort of the original creation of the world and there being sort of a separation between water and land But, you know, that separation only existed later. And then, of course, there's the name of the play, Metamorphosis, Change. Um... And if there's maybe a needle thread through all these stories, at least one of them is this sort of this sort of change of all the characters throughout the story. And so, water is at a scientific level maybe the basis for much change. First of all, water is always changing. It's not a solid, so it is constantly taking form, constantly growing. You know, rising up as new bodies enter it, and falling down, constantly moving. Um, especially as actors are splashing around in it. So it, it sort of sets, uh, you know, if you imagine sort of uh, what evolution, if you picture sort of the word evolution in your mind, I sort of imagine sort of like a wet, uh, wet growing things. That's maybe what the word stirs up in my mind. That might be some of where she's coming from, is this sort of idea of water as change.
1: I wonder if also there is something to do with the kind of the cleansing property of water and and because so many of these plays have something to do with, or so, sorry, so many of these myths have something, they really are little plays within the play, um, have something to do with people uh, being arrogant toward the gods and the gods punishing them. But then oftentimes a good thing comes of it. A, a level of of uh, purity comes out of it. I'm thinking of the uh, the uh, Alcyon and Saix myth that... Uh, They, uh, SaeX basically says, "Now the god of wind ain't got nothing on me," and then the god of wind kills him. Essentially, when yeah, he he sails
0: away from Alcyus, from uh, Alcyon. Again, I'm terrible at pronunciation. (laughs) I'm just gonna. From his love, um, he sails away from her. And she warns him that the wind, her father, the wind, will probably kill him on his voyage and then the father, of the wind, does. And there's a lot more where he like, comes to her in a dream. But like Jackson was saying, the end of that story, he is – you know, I don't know if he's maybe punished for arrogance, um, maybe something like that. But ultimately he's killed by the sea and the wind. But the end of that story is that his body comes back to her um, on the sea and then they are both changed into seagulls where they can live the rest of their lives sort of together. Um, so that, that's sort of one of those moments where something happens because of – I don't know about arrogance or maybe even sort of um, ignorance or ign- ignoring of the gods, the sort of idea mm-hmm. that they, they're not going to impact me. Um, and Then they get, the gods, of course, impact them and oftentimes they're suffering as a result of that. But then the end of a lot of these myths, you're right, is sort of a, uh, a return to love. Um, a change of love, something like that, because that's maybe the other connection of these stories is the the connection of love. Um, romantic love, yeah. familial love, those two ideas sort of dominate a lot of the way that the play progresses story to story. Things change, but sort of the overriding dominant power of love, even over the gods, Who are forced to ban, you know, what happens at the end of that myth we were just talking about is that the sailor's body comes back to shore and she's so overwhelmed that she goes and kisses the dead body, realizing that her, you know, her love has gone away from her. And the narrators describe how the gods are so moved by that that they then create this miracle for them.
1: Yeah, that, 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 like, how could you, how could the gods, though the gods seem to be uh, intemperate kind of madhouses occasionally, they still like, they're involved and they are moved by these deeds of the the humans, and that's kind of an interesting, weird dynamic as well. That I, I don't I don't know that that is really the the focus of the play. I think you're right. the The uh, love does bind these together. As I've been thinking about them more and more, that they all they all uh, center even even the story of Eros and Psyche. Eros and Psyche. Um, uh, they they can't see each other because if they do, uh, Eros' mother, Aphrodite, will kill Psyche because he has fallen in love with her. And, Which is, of- that's,
0: that's sort of, that myth exists a lot through... Popular society, there's another version, a version of sort of the same structural myth where a girl, like, goes to sleep with a man at night and she can't see him. And then one night she decides – she the, light, the, light, the lights are off. She's not allowed to see him. Um, but then one night she decides to bring a candle and, like, the wax burns him. Um, that yeah. I've, I've heard other versions of that myth that have nothing to do with Eros and Psyche. So that's an interesting sort of cultural Myth that maybe maybe originally comes from this Ovid myth, I would have to trace that back in history, how it all fits together. Maybe there's sort of two – because the one I've heard has to do with a polar bear. Um, it's like a Nordic myth. Hmm. Um, and she, there's like a great polar bear that finds her wandering yeah. in the cold. And so then she, the polar bear takes her back to the castle and he says, you're going to come lie with the, man, the king of the house every night, but you can't see him. Eventually she brings the candle in just like Psyche does and burns him and he turns back into the polar bear. She realizes, oh, they were the one and the same person. So that, that, yeah. that picture of the myth and, and the other thing that could be is that Mary Zimmerman might have borrowed some from that other myth too. I'm not totally sure of the history. But that myth culminates in – because Psyche chooses to bring her candle in and look at him, um, he wakes up and sees her. And so the the narrators of the piece, which are, again, a totally different use of narrators than any of the other stories. This one is uh, two narrators called (laughs) Q&A and the narration Mm -hmm. is entirely in questions. What's happening? This is happening. What's going to happen now? This will happen now. Who's that? This is Psyche. What's she doing? This is blah, blah, blah. Um, it's sort of a yeah, all rhythmic... the
1: action of the scene is carrying on in front of these two talking.
0: Yeah, and so uh, what happens at the end of that story is that she is, because she looked at him, she's made to suffer. And the narration is sort of uh, heartbreakingly beautiful. She she drops the wax on him, and the Q&A narrator's, uh, you know, the question goes, what's going to happen now? Answer, she's going to suffer, and then she's going to suffer, and then she's going to suffer. She's made to do lots of tasks, sort of menial tasks that are almost impossible by Aphrodite, mm-hmm. um, or no, by, uh, by uh, Hera, right? That's right. right.
1: I think it's Aphrodite, because oh, okay. that's the mom of Eros. Yep.
0: Oh, that's right. Yes, Aphrodite, and then, um, but but in the end, Zeus over sort of overwhelmed by their love for each other, Eros and Psyche, sort of overrules Aphrodite and says, "Nope, these two now can live forever together." So that's another moment yeah. where human humans love for each other is so overwhelming to the gods. It's almost as if the gods in this play that might be something that they lack or that they see in humanity Mm. um, that so stirs them. You know, the gods are kind of, the Greek gods at least, are sort of reckless. They're often pictured as (laughs) reckless, ruthless, um, sort of doing as they please, regardless of what it means for humanity. But this play has, I think, a different conception of the gods, where looking down on humanity's love for each other, especially great acts of love, um, of real, true, deep love, moves them to compassion and sympathy and to use their power to the benefit of those in whom they see love.
1: Yeah, even the storm uh, that, that kills Saeix that we talked about before, the storm is told as a war between the god of the wind, uh, Aeolus, and, and Poseidon. That they are, but it is like they're reaching toward each other as if they, 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 they desire each other. Like even that storm is told within the context of the gods desiring, but not like being able to connect with, with that love and with that passion that they see around them and the, the humanity around them. Then also, and, and again, and, uh, in the story of Orpheus and Eurydice, there's another, that's another great play that we should do sometime, Eurydice. Um, but, uh. Again, in that story with Orpheus and Eurydice, that's one of the of, – of the Greek myths, that is one of the more well-known ones. But Orpheus uh, Orpheus and Eurydice get married and on the day of the wedding, Eurydice is bitten by a snake and dies and goes to hell. Or Hades, not really hell. It's a different concept. <laughs> Deal with it, people. The land of the um, dead. She, yeah, she goes <laughs> the to the land, land of the dead, dead.
0: Which is not necessarily and, uh, bad and that's sort of part of right. the telling of the story, actually.
1: Mm-hmm. But Orpheus is so overwhelmed with sorrow that he devotes his life to finding a way down into Hades. And uh, he does. He goes down and... Hades is so moved by his speech that he gives in the underworld that he says all right sh- you you've you've moved us this this love that you have the scene is almost set up in the context of this play too as if they're kind of languidly lying around um, Hades well, is lying that's, with see, his that's lover sort of
0: interesting the stage direction is like Orpheus discovers Hades and Hades lying with Persephone which yeah you know has sort of a double meaning there on the one hand, mm-hmm. he could find them lounging together in that terms of lying together. On the other right. hand, he could find them lying together yes. as husband and wife. And I don't I don't entirely know which Mary Zimmerman intends. The play does have discussions of sex in it um, and some um, sort of dramatic representations of sex. So it's not totally outside the realm of possibility that she means lying together as man and wife, uh, yeah. which would be an interesting – Picture into which Orpheus stumbles, uh, but it could also mean lounging. <laughs> right. and I, I'm not totally sure which. You might have to decide that as a production team if you decided to do it.
1: Yeah, that is that is an interesting. Like certainly that will set the scene. Whatever you decide to <laughs> to uh, uh, do for that moment, but he, nevertheless, Hades and Persephone are are deeply moved by Orpheus's plea and allow the opportunity for Eurydice to try to make it back to the surface. As we all know that that is ultimately a doomed. Doomed task, uh, yeah, and and another. That's another
0: time where the gods are sort of overwhelmed by one human's expression of love for another. What's interesting about that story, and again, this is me sort of returning to the narrative elements of the play. That story, unlike any of the other stories, is told twice. Yes, and the first yes. telling of the story is Ovid's version. The second telling is from oh, I'm blanking on his name, Rainer something. The first name is yeah. Rainer. Um, it's from he's uh. early uh, 20th century poet, and he has written a, a different sort of poetic expression about the Orpheus and Eurydice myth. And so they tell the first version, Ovid's version, which is basically um, from Orpheus's perspective. He goes and gets her, brings her back, and of course, as we all know, at the end of the Orpheus and Eurydice myth, all he has to do is walk out of Hades, believing that she is following him Not turn around and look at her. If he makes it all the way out, then she gets to come back. Of course, along the way, in Ovid's telling, he keeps thinking, uh, and in Mary Zimmerman's telling, he keeps thinking, well, is she really there? I can't hear her. If I could just look at her. So he does turn around. You know some other versions of the myth, she turns to a pillar of salt. In this one, she just is sort of drawn back into Hades. That's the first telling. And then, they tell a story again from this other poetic expression of it, and this one is sort of Eurydice's headspace. And what you learn is that when Eurydice died, she sort of became a creature of the land of the dead. Um, she has forgotten Orpheus. And it's not sort of, it maybe would be sad that she has forgotten him, except that the story is really about how she's become her true self as a inhabitant of the dead, how she's left yeah. behind being some man's possession as a wife in that time. She, and she's, you know, they talk about sort of the metaphor of she's let her hair down into sort of the real Eurydice. And so when Orpheus turns around, she doesn't even, and Hermes says, eh, sorry, you got to go back. He turned around. She says, who? who? Who turned around? I have no idea what you're talking about. She doesn't recognize yeah. Orpheus. And so there's a different... Version of the myth told again, and that is not done at any time else throughout the play. Each story, almost 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 every single story has a unique narrative way of telling the story. There's no real consistency. Some of them have more traditional narrators, um, but even then within the story, sort of the tropes of how the story is told are different.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and and the vernacular is different. They use modern words, and that's kind of jarring. Well, sometimes um, they do,
0: sometimes they don't. Right, right. The, the myth yeah, about the sailor and uh, the wind is not really modern at all. That one's told just sort of through standard narrators and through really normal speech. Um, or not normal speech, but like what you would think of as sort of old-timey speech um, sort mm-hmm. of for like an old Greek myth. And then the story of um, a, a Phaedron, whose father is Apollo— um, his story is like he da- his story isn't enacted really at all he's like lying yeah, yeah. on a rubber raft in the pool telling what happened <laughs> to his therapist as his right. dad Apollo sort of sings an aria above him so that you know that one's totally different and that one is in really modern vernacular he's, he talks mm-hmm. about like his dad having like a car rather than a chariot of fire and about how he goes to this sort of preppy private school rather than like having sort of you know ancient Greek friend relationships
1: yeah i think even even in the uh even in the most traditional ones though she finds ways to bring in this like kind of uh a jarring moment to make you focus again like even in that i'll say on in say X myth uh the uh goddess's helper iris goes to sleep and she makes it out by bringing oh, an alarm right. clock with her <laughs> I so, totally like,
0: forgot about that part. Of
1: story. Yeah,
0: that's such a great so that, part of that story.
1: It's such a great part, and and there's there's lots of those little things that like in an otherwise completely traditional setting, something modern makes it in, and it and it makes you makes you focus. I feel like I, I am I am brought back into the moment by this thing that is well, from it, out it's of the sort
0: moment. of it makes you live in the timelessness of the stories and of and not mm. even I don't even know if it's sort of if, if it's a point about the timelessness of the myths. As it is about the timelessness of things like love and change, that there are versions of these stories, and even within the same story, like Jackson was saying, some of it is sort of the ancient Greek settings, some of it is modern settings. I imagine you could costume your characters from uh, from any time <laughs> throughout human history uh, for, th- for all the different stories. I mean, we we did a version of the Comedy of Errors when we were in college together, and the scenic designer for that show used to just any he just throw anything on the set. He'd just say, Yeah, it's a <laughs> (laughs) comedy of errors just put it in there and that you sort of get that sense about this play too it's like anything could go into this play
1: (laughs) and it would still work honestly because and i think i I absolutely think you're right It, it, it is a further argument for why this play is or why these themes that this play are talking is talking about are timeless they are still prevalent and they are still There's still why they say this in the first part of the play. This That's still why we look to the stars like we or perhaps we look to the stars like these are the themes of something greater than us that we still adhere to, even even though it's thousands of years after they were written.
0: And you get the sense throughout the play, maybe we should spend a a minute talking about this, Jackson, about her perception of the gods on that sort of concept of the beginning of the play is a description of humanity and the creation of the earth, like we've said. And uh, sort of the end of that piece of it is a description of how humanity, because now we have words and we're part of the earth, we sort of look up. As, as humankind rather than down at the earth, we look at the stars and it's either uh, maybe out of arrogance is one option that they give or out of uh, like nostalgia for what we used to be um, yeah. these sort of creatures of the stars. Now we're creatures of the planet. And so that is the beginning. That's sort of the setup for the play. Um, and then we get into all the different stories and then throughout the stories, we get these pictures of gods how how do you feel about her presentation of gods? How seriously does she take a supernatural force in the world? Uh, how, uh, how graciously does she paint a supernatural force in the world? What might that indicate about the play's thoughts on uh, modern-day theology?
1: Yeah, I think she does a really good job at maintaining the Greek feel for gods, which are these erratic, uh, very powerful, but could wake up one day and hate you sort of individuals that uh, basically play with humans all the time (laughs) in one capacity or another. I think she goes one step further, though, and she takes away some of their uh, um, incredible power. They still have... Or power's the wrong word. They still have incredible power. They lose some of their gravitas, I think is what I'm trying to say.
0: Oh, yeah. I would absolutely agree with that.
1: Yeah, because they she the, the gods she portrays, she doesn't portray the big ones that often, like Zeus and Hera, although they do make appearances. Normally, they're towards the end, and they set things to right. But the gods we interact with are all very kind of... Um, Trying to find the right word for it, but petty petty is a good word for it. They like, they just meddle, and uh, or, sometimes or, with or, uh, with. Um, uh,
0: let's see, I'm not I'm not comfortable settling on petty, um, because like we already discussed, they're also moved to acts of great compassion. Um, yeah. Maybe maybe rather than petty, um, sporadic, they they are capable. The gods are capable of acts mm. of great. Compassion and great love, but they are also simultaneously capable of acts of great cruelty. And it's not always clear moment to moment which they're going to do. For example, one of the gods in one of the stories, um, because this man chooses to cut down a grove of sacred trees, she she calls on this sort of spiritual force of hunger to encapsulate his life and he becomes starving all the time to the point where he eats himself at the end of that story. So that's an act of great cruelty for what is maybe a minor offense cutting down a tree that you happen (laughs) to like
1: (laughs) yes yeah and still though like that is one of the ones that is like a really there is a clear offense someone tells him don't do this or the goddess will you know come after you and oreskatan has no respect for the gods and that's the, the his ultimate downfall as opposed to the myth of Mira. Which is she just didn't want to marry the guys. <laughs> she didn't want, to, want the suitors. And Aphrodite's like, okay, you're gonna like your dad. Yeah,
0: it's like uh, it's an offense because Mira won't fall in love with anybody. So Aphrodite says, Fine, well then you're gonna fall in love with your father. <laughs> dun, 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 dun 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 Well and that sort of that so. myth uh confused me a little bit. It, it seemed to straddle the line of where the gods have power and where they don't. For example. If it's true that Aphrodite has someone ha- makes can has the ability to make someone fall in love, um, is then is the painting of love really sort of all, our falling in love is at the hands of Aphrodite? Um, if so, then isn't I mean how how could Mira Mira choose not to fall in love if Aphrodite is then able to overwhelm her and make her choose to fall in love? That all that seemed like a weird line to straddle, and uh, I I don't know I because I don't, I have such great respect for Mary Zimmerman. Like I said, I love this play. Um, so this is Mm -hmm. not a critique. I, I think that Mary Zimmerman chose to, um, sort of do away with consistency in what gods have, what power in story to story and sort of live in the images and the stories more than in some external consistency, um, which, which we've talked about a lot already, you know, narrative structure, tropes, things like that just aren't consistent story to story. So power of the gods might not be either. Um, but that's you know, that's like Jackson was saying to return to the point that is a moment where uh, and a, an offense was sort of maybe seen like she she didn't that wasn't right. Mira trying to flaunt Aphrodite I guess or you know trying to offend her she just wasn't interested in any of her suitors and as a result Aphrodite put this terrible thing upon her so that's an act of great cruelty
1: yes I think too like I. I I want to I want to go where you were going for just a second and and follow up with I think what Aphrodite has power over in that is is the curse of infatuation as opposed to actually enabling love um, because Aphrodite so you, so you is, feel
0: like Mira's affection for her father is more like infatuation than love
1: I think so. Um, which would well let's let's dig into that for a second because I think I went there a little too quickly. Um, so so those the the, the line of events that happen is uh, she she has all these suitors and uh, she's turning them aside and well, Aphrodite says. Well, first of says, all, let's
0: let's say that the 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 meta play for this play again, unlike any other play, really, <laughs> is that. Uh, some in, oh, a, in yeah, the in yeah. the higher level story, uh, this <laughs> right. one guy Veritumnus or something like that is trying to woo a girl who who also does not really <laughs> want to fall in love with any of her suitors. And yep, so to do that, on, he disguises himself as an old woman and goes to her and says, <laughs> "Oh, you pretty young girl, you better fall in love with somebody, or Aphrodite's going to be mad at you." Here's a story about when that happened. And then, as, uh-huh. pretending to be an old woman, he narrates this story. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right, yeah. So may- maybe there's a little bit of control over <laughs> that Vertumnus is having over this story. Maybe it's not like a straight up way to yeah, evaluate like- <laughs> Aphrodite.
0: <laughs> right? You you wonder what of uh, what of his bias may come into this storytelling.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Which also, this is this is a bit of a, a side rail, but as long as we're talking about him, the scene before this where he's like constantly putting on different outfits.
0: Oh my gosh, and, yeah. And so like, this g- guy that's in love with her that's trying to convince her, he's now disguised as an old woman, but has been yep. previously disguised as like a farmer and a fisher and a, a shearer and you know has tried on his, part of his sort of personalities that he puts on all these crazy disguises <laughs> to woo her prior to dressing up as an old woman. And then as the old woman, he says, may I suggest as a suitor, that you fall in love with Veritumnus. He's a very handsome <laughs> yeah, young man. I know him almost handsome. like I know myself. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> it's yep, a
0: very, very brilliant. funny scene, which then within is told sort of a, a, a starkly not funny story.
1: Right. Absolutely. This. Yeah, you, you definitely get some juxtaposition within that context, both going into this story and then coming out of it as well, because... Through the course of the story, she is made by Aphrodite to fall uh, unescapably in love with her father. Uh, or we're talking or about potentially
0: in infatuation. That's sort of what we're drilling down on.
1: Yes. And uh, she gets some help slash not help from her nursemaid. <laughs> not who, <help>. uh, <laughs> Decidedly <laughs> yeah. not much help. <laughs> Thank you, nursemaid. Just the wrong kind of help. Because what she's
0: going to do, the nursemaid catches her um, choosing suicide. Um, she has, she's so wrapped up in her love for her father, which she knows is wrong. And she feels such shame and such guilt. And it just racks her that her solution is she's going to kill herself to, to escape it. The nursemaid catches her, says, what's going on? She has a great line about, you know, old people. We aren't entirely helpless. Let me see what I can do for you. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Yep. And what she does is the nursemaid <laughs> says, well, your mother's going to be away next week. And when your mother's away, your father tends to get really drunk. Uh, so how about when he's drunk, I tell him that there's a beautiful young woman who would like to come and visit him in his chamber, but only if he's blindfolded. And yeah. in, a, in a heartbreakingly, uh, just jarringly, soul-jarring line, at least for me, the, the father asks, well, how old is she? And the nursemaid says, about your daughter's age. And he says, bring her in. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, That line, every time I've read this play, that line always hurts me.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, because prior, you're waiting for that scene for him to do something good, and it does does not come. (laughs) Um, And and then you you go through
0: three... It's like the, it, there's some moral questions there too because of course he's being tricked. So all he's really guilty of is choosing to have an affair, which at the time yep. of the Greeks may have been a different kind of choice. Um, she definitely—I don't think that she intends. You know, Mary Zimmerman intends for it to be a, the wrong choice. So right. it, she's definitely painting the choice to have an affair as bad. But that's, that's terrible. But he's—he's he's not making the choice to sleep with his daughter. So we have to be—we have to be willing to absolve him of that choice. However, yes. what he is choosing to do is sleep with a girl about his daughter's age, which right. is uh, bleh,
1: gross. Has its, it's own kind of icky, bad subtext. Yeah, it's yeah, icky is exactly the right word. And then you get three three scenes, basically that are enacted. These this is one of the scenes within the play that. Sex is enacted on stage. It leans heavily
0: on the pool. This is one of the myths that leans really heavily on there being a pool. It's interesting. and, And maybe before we run out of time, I'd like to talk about what this play would be like without the pool. But yeah, this scene relies pretty heavily on it. And it's a depiction of sex.
1: Yes, Indeed. So, by the end, so eventually, uh, as we kind of talked about, the 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 father uh, says to the young woman uh, that he wants to see her, and he pulls off his blindfold and they realize what has happened. And he tries to drown her in that scene for a moment, but she gets away, and they separate. And then the narrator,
0: this their narrator structure again. This guy pretending to be an old woman sort of presents options for what might have happened next. He says, Mm -hmm. "There's different versions of what happened next. Some say that she turned into a tree. Some say that she uh, had a son that grew up to be Adonis. Some say that she dissolved entirely into tears. What blah 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 blah, blah. and just sort of provides those uh, those options of what might have happened next."
1: Yep. So. So here's, love or infatuation, to what back do you think, to, Jackson? Yeah, to wrap it back to love and infatuation, I think, hmm, I'm going to approach it from the position of the way that the gods use things in this play, which is the gods use the curse of the things that they control to bring about the punishment, and And uh, and and also just my knowledge of Aphrodite, I don't think she goes around doing the Cupid thing and making people fall in love. She is rather the the uh, the mm, symbol of love, the god of love. When love happens, she's a fan. Um, So uh, I think because we see we see sleep, we see or not sleep, we see hunger used in another one, and that is the primary thing that Aphrodite. It is Aphrodite. No, it's uh, Ceres sends to torment. Uh, Rescaton is hunger, which is a physicalized character. I think so. I think she is using the dark side of whatever she has control of to curse her. And I, a infatuation without love is certainly a very dark element indeed. Here's so,
0: I, I'm inclined to both agree and disagree with you. Um, let's. Why I would uh, think that. I disagree and that what Mira feels for her father is is real r- passionate romantic love as you know as weird as that is to say first of all is that Mira herself is a fairly she seems to be fairly earnest um it is true that what mm-hmm. she wants in the tension of the play is to sleep with him that does not seem to be the the core of her affection for him she imagines herself uh, being cared for by him as a husband, being um, happy, sort of living side by side and working side by side with him. Her, you know, absent the part where they actually sleep together, her affection for him doesn't seem to be rooted in the actual act of, act of sex. And you might imagine that she says, I'm in love with my father, and the nursemaid, uh, d- you know, contrives to get them together in some other way, convince the father that he could actually live and be, and be husband and wife. Where I'm inclined to agree with you is that like I've said before, it seems to me that in this play, love is something between humans. Um, it is sort of a pure force in the world that is uh, maybe inaccessible by the gods and then only witnessable. And all they can do is provide sort of odd mimics of it to their, uh, to their creatures, the humans. All they can do is provide sort of these uh, momentary glimpses or uh, pretends. Here's where yeah. maybe we can get at sort of the, the, the distance between the two. As I recall, and I should probably look here to make sure that I'm right, in the middle – so how how this is dramatized is that Aphrodite actually climbs on Mira's back um, when she's infatuated with her father. Um, and that's how the drama of Aphrodite using her power to make Mira become infatuated or become in love with her father works. She uh, just actually climbs on her. Um,
1: we should check it because hunger does that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Resketon.
0: But but uh, Aphrodite definitely does it, too. Um, yeah, yeah. She, uh, the stage direction is Aphrodite literally seizes Mira and hangs on to her. Mm. Then, later in the play, Mira is the stage direction, and there's very few stage directions. So st- the stage directions that Mary Zimmerman puts in are really significant. And this stage direction is Mira struggles free of Aphrodite. And that is before much of the rest of the play. So here's maybe what I'm suggesting that Mary Zimmerman is getting at in her staging directions. That Aphrodite originally arrests Mira with sort of a a God-infused infatuation. Something maybe like love, but not love. And then as a result of that, heartbreakingly, Mira in her inner self, that becomes true love. Hmm. Because what happens is she she, she struggles free of Aphrodite's infatuation only to find that there is real love on the other side of that. And that is what becomes sort of the heartbreaking side of the play is that she's not just infected by a curse and she'll get over it when Aphrodite decides to stop being mad. But she has terribly, horribly as a result of Aphrodite's careless actions come on to something permanent, something really Mm. destructive, not just the curse, not just a momentary curse
1: yeah I do like that because that I think that holds true in the way that the stage directions are indicating too, because it's not that when she breaks away, Aphrodite goes away, or it's not Aphrodite doesn't latch back onto her after that scene, and thus it continues. she goes away and stays away, but the the feeling remains and, and what and happens there's even right the scene, after that
0: scene is this. She struggles for Aphrodite into a scene with her father, which is very tender. Um, her father says, you know, why are you crying? Mm. She says – she doesn't really tell him. She says, is it because you haven't found a suitor yet? Well, why don't you find yourself a suitor? And she says, I want a suitor like you, which there's some dramatic irony because the audience knows she's in love with him and she, she means I want you actually. The father doesn't know right. that. So there's an element of dramatic irony. There's also an element of that being sort of a tender, lovely scene. But for the fact that we know she's in love with him, that could be a scene that happens between lots of fathers and daughters in the world—not on a sexual level, but on a level of daughter saying, "You're such a—you know—you're such a wonderful father. I hope someday my husband is as wonderful as you are."
1: Right. Yeah. I think, I I, I think I think you're right. I think it it is like interesting to kind of grapple with with where that switch happens. And I think... <laughs> who
0: would have thought that the two myths we would have spent the most time on are the sailor one and the one where the daughter's in love with the father. Starting this conversation, yeah. who could have guessed that?
1: I know. <laughs> I'm still struggling too with like the, the the God business, but I think the other thing that I think we are... What we have kind of danced around and, and maybe said a little bit is that the way she plays with the gods is a really important part. So I, I'm glad that we were we kind of got into the ways that these gods are different than than Greek mythology is, uh, because they are they are too, She stays true to them, true to their true true to their nature, but she does wield them differently for the sake of the story.
0: Yeah, and and she wields them sort of wildly. Some scenes differently than yeah. others, um, which I think is is really effective and creates you know i there is something to be said in this play about sort of modern theology and modern conceptions of god and godly intervention in human love and some of what it says is just that the play elevates love not just romantic love but love for family love for friends to a very high level as sort of the the core Message The core ethos of the play is love. In fact, the concluding yep. scene is to yeah, we got to touch on that. Uh, so the, the final myth of the play, and again, in a totally different than any other play, what has happened is that the end of the last end of the second to last myth, one of the actors playing actually the actress playing Psyche turns to the audience and says, Oh, we have one more myth for you. Which there's been no <laughs> yeah. point in the play where anybody has recognized that they're actors yet. So that's the first time, right. totally different than anything else, um, and wildly effective, I think. Just say, just so simple. We have one more story for you. We hope you like it. Um, And this is the story of Zeus and Hermes have come into the world. They're pretending to be beggars. They go house to house looking for someone to care for them. Everybody turns them away except for this older couple. This poor older couple. The poor older couple take them in, not knowing that they're gods, feed them a meal, and then discover that they're gods. And Zeus and Hermes, as a result, make them sort of wealthy. They, they grow their house to a great size. They give them a lot of blessings. Then they say, we'll also sort of grant you a wish. And the, cu- the wish of the couple is that they would die together. Rather than separately. And so the final the, actually it's the second to final image of the play is these the the pool has been filled with little bowls of candles. Um, So, of course, there's some beautiful just visual imagery there. But then the story imagery is that the couple turns into trees together at the same moment. And that sort of the the final lines of the play are them whispering to each other, "'Let me die the same moment as my love dies. Let me not outlive my capacity to love. Let me continue to love even after death together, you know, dying, choosing love together.'" And, and that's living they, forever. Th- living forever yeah. at, through love, yeah. And they've become mm-hmm. trees together in their final death, always able to grow and live together um, after that. So that's the last story, um, which is a huge final emphasis on love. And then what yep. happens just after that to even hit the point home farther, Jackson?
1: Yeah. So – the the play is bookended by the story of Midas. We have it at the beginning, typical Midas tale. He gets the gift of uh, being able to touch things and turn them to gold, and he turns in, in kind of the culmination of of that blind spot, he turns his daughter to gold and is told to go on a huge uh, uh, trek and journey to find this pool to Washington. Maybe all could be restored. And so,
0: yeah, that's the first play. And you think that that's just the end yep. of the Midas story. He goes off to do it. Right. There's no leaves. suggestion that the story is going to continue. He just goes to mm-hmm. do it. You sort of imagine, okay, he's going to go do it and set things right.
1: Yep. But then then in <laughs> in what must feel just like so much... Joy that they are coming back to the story again. Midas wanders on after this final scene. I think everyone is on stage still.
0: Yeah, I think uh, the cast is on stage having delivered these sort of final yep. narrative lines.
1: Mm-hmm. So the whole cast is on stage and Midas wanders in with a jump rope that he has also turned to gold that was his daughter's and he comes into the pool he dips the jump rope into the pool washes his hands and brings the jump rope back out of the pool and it has been restored so the sort of the, from- the
0: implication is that during the course of the play midas has gone on this journey uh, to the end yep. of the earth to find the pool that he can wash away the gift of gold on and return everything so the implication is he's he's there now he's been on the journey his journey is coming to an end he Saves the jump rope, you know, turns the jump rope away from gold, back to a normal jump rope, and then
1: his daughter comes out from backstage. But she like I guess th- he would have to the be back.
0: carried on. Or no no no. Because uh, he washes his hands, she, enters. she just is turned back to normal so she can walk again.
1: Yep. Yep. So she enters in, and tr- there's there's this moment. The, the again, very few stage directions in this play. This is one of the written stage directions. She comes toward him, and Midas shies back twice before they finally embrace, and they are together again. And that feeds right back into that: to die together, to love forever theme, which is just like... So,
0: you know, if you if you chose to stage it this way, you can see this beautiful image of this older yeah. love, this passionate romantic love of this older couple has turned them into trees, and they are on the stage having grown together as trees. And then mm-hmm. in the pool, potentially, or on the side of the deck, you get this image of familial love, of finally coming back together after someone has hurt the other one. Um, and the yep. uh, father and daughter are able to clasp each other in the the true, real grips of Family love.
1: And all of this is lit by these floating candles that they have brought out, and in that last moment, as they embrace the whole cast snuffs out the candles and that's the it's it's almost like a photo that you get to take away the the light imprints on you and you see that image as the thing that you walk away from the play from and it all and, comes back
0: for, it all spreads and remember out of those narrative lines I talked about as the old couple turns to trees let me not outlive my capacity to love let me continue to love after death and so continue to live in love and then Midas finally is able to hug his daughter again The old couple has turned to trees growing ever together and End play. so the the picture of love is is maybe what is so impactful in this play. this this elevating of, or maybe not elevating because, you know, I think I, I believe in love as this high lofty goal, but this attempt to paint the sort of true nature of love, not how your t- your conventional TV show or movie might depict it, but something trying to get at the core of what love really is. And the way that she does that is by telling myths, by telling stories. And there's actually some conversation about that in the play. It doesn't look like we're going to get time to go over all of that, but Throughout the play, there are several times where characters or narrators comment on the fact that they're using myths to get at sort of larger truths. Um, And that they, they don't ever say we're using this play to get to the larger truth of love. But you as an audience, you get a couple of times throughout the play. Oh, you can use myths to tell larger truths. And then at the end of the play, you realize this play is an effort to use myths to tell the larger truth of what what real love is about, the power of what real love can capture.
1: Which is super rare, I feel like, for adults. I mean, I I at least growing up was able to interact with different myths. I'm thinking of like Aesop's Fables and I read Greek mythology and we tell, you know, fairy tales and stories that all tell these these through lines. But like, I feel like as an adult, there is not as many spaces for me to go and hear someone telling the story of the truth that love is this force in the world that is greater and more... The the only way we can understand this force because it is so outside of our ability to understand it is by telling little facet stories so that we see one way that love is and another way that love is and another way that love is. And Right. It's, it's impossible to that.
0: define how powerful the force of real true love is in the world. But what I can do is tell you the story of Midas and how he shunned his daughter and the great despair that caused him and then the great joy at being reunited in him. And that can give you at least a small picture of the power of
1: love. Mm -hmm. And another time you get another story of how, you know, bosses and Philemon wanted to die together in the same moment because they wouldn't want their love to live without the other. So you by by way of telling these many, many stories, you begin to gain a functional understanding of love. You still are unable to define it. You like there are a thousand thousand tales of how love is but yet by you are invited to come in and interact with these couple stories and thus build your knowledge of what it is and i think that's really special <laughs> I, I, I love it. i, I love getting able it's to it's incredible it.
0: i think it's a masterpiece yeah. it's just so beautiful Absolutely. maybe i'd like to make maybe the capstone we conversation it, yeah. for us jackson is So Jackson and I are both directors. We believe in being faithful to the playwright. There's no world in which I'm going to direct this play without the pool because Mary Zimmerman has made the pool very important. But in a pretend world where I would think about it, how necessary is the pool? Because putting a pool on stage is a big problem, and it's a reason why you're probably never going to see this play unless you live in a big right. professional theater city where your college has some yep. money to actually invest in the insurance and the right kinds of equipment. It's very, very hard to put a big pool of water on stage. Yep. How necessary is it, do you think? Could you do this play and, you know, access some of its real power if there isn't a big pool of water on stage? Hmm.
1: Um, I think you would have to strip it down completely almost. I think the, the ultimately I think, I think no, um, is, is where I'm going to go eventually is I think there are some images in here that are unable to be replicated without water on stage. Um, I'm, I'm thinking of, I'm thinking of the scenes between Mira and her father. I don't know of another way to do a scene where a father and daughter, have, uh, have sex on stage without that as it's, as, as a way to kind of tell the story artfully. Uh, I, th- I'm also thinking of just the, 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 the sea battle that you, you walk into initially, but that, um, sorry, it's not a battle, but it kind of is because you get the spirits of the sea and the air fighting each other in this water and water is flying. You imagine wind howling. I don't know how you would do that on a regular flat stage. Um, I think um, part of what the
0: pool does is make the play so unlike standard staging because if if almost Mm -hmm. your entirety of your staging area is in water, you're necessarily going to have to stage actors and images differently. So – one thought I have had is potentially if you did not – if you are going to produce the play without a pool, which I don't even know if you could do. You may get stopped yeah. in doing the production if you try to yeah. do it without a pool just legally, which would probably be the right thing to do by Mary Zimmerman and her team. She wrote a play with a pool. But if you were going to try to do right. it a different way, one way I have thought about is involving a, a medium like dance. Um Something that is also Mm. so unlike standard staging. You know, a lot of the play even feels sort of like dance in the way it uses images and bodies. Um, You could potentially involve scenes. You know, use scenes that where the pool is central uh, and use something like dance, something also non-realistic, suggestive, rather because you know these scenes didn't. Most of these scenes didn't happen with people standing in three feet of water. But right. you know, they, she imagines images where they do. You may be able to recreate some of those images with dance. So I think I maybe actually come down on the other side of it. I think you potentially could access some of the real power of this play without the pool. What you'll lose, I think, get doing it without the pool is some of the just – Some of the shock and awe coming into a play set in a pool sets you in a totally different mindset to see something that is going to be very different, um, almost reverent. You know, something that takes place in water Mm -hmm. that is going to be about change and movement. Where coming just to a regular like a black box theater in the round where you could do something like this, there just is not going to be maybe that same engagement with the non-realism. Um, but you may be able to access some of that non-realism just in clever staging, uses of dance, uses mm-hmm. of visual art, um, use of music. You know, you'd have to access other non-realistic elements instead. I I feel like I probably could create a staging of this play without the pool. It's never going to be like what Mary Zimmerman created, and if yeah. Mary Zimmerman is listening somewhere, she's probably writing me an angry letter about how the pool is essential to the core <laughs> of the, the theme, and I agree with you, Mary Zimmerman. I'm yeah. just saying I think I, if I was forced to <laughs> a gunpoint, I probably could create an effective staging. and not just I'm not just saying me. I think that people could create an effective staging of the play absent the pool. It's going to be different. It's going to be a different kind mm-hmm. of storytelling. And but it, it, you may be able to access some of that same non-realism.
1: I think I hear what you're saying. I think in a world that is uh, devoid of expectations and devoid of knowing what it could be, I think absolutely that this plays uh, uh, this play's mythic structure, fable structure could easily lend itself, not easily, it would be hard.
0: I think you put it exactly right. In a world where you didn't know what the play could be, in a world yeah. where you didn't know what it could be set in a pool. How crazy is that? In a pool. In a world right. where you didn't know that what, what you could create there, you may be able to create something else.
1: Mm-hmm. And it's not, just, it's not just the wow factor of the pool. There is certainly a wow factor of the pool. But at least in my mind, there is, you, you said it already, there is an awe when you walk into a space with a- Like a what reverence. Is, what feels like a reverence, what feels like a living entity is in front of you because we don't understand the sea. The sea has mysteries. One of the few places left on earth that there is still mystery to us. We don't know what's down there. And this, so it becomes its own character, its own entity, and its own, it becomes very much, A a godlike character within the story. Characters emerge and sink within it, and it's the gateway between life and death in some instances. So I think, I I think it's it's intrinsic for the way the play is now. Also, and just and this is just like audience perception thing. If you ever were to do it without a pool, that same thing would be in everyone's mind eventually. There would be a moment where they're like, "That was clever." But it's not a pool.
0: <laughs> right, yeah. Again, it would have to be in a world where nobody knew that the play was supposed to be staged in yeah. the pool. <laughs> and instead yep. you staged it in something. It would be something different. It would be more like conventional theater, probably, with some non-realistic mm-hmm. elements. Then this is more like um, beautiful storytelling. Um, so there's there's yep. some distinction there that the pool creates and also her style creates. That yes, was I mean. a small you know, maybe half percent of all the possible conversations about an incredibly complex play. Uh, again, yes. I would not have been able There's to so guess what myths we ended up focusing on at the beginning. The those, are, those like aren't even close to my favorites in the set of uh, them.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I thought we were going to spend a lot of time on Orpheus and Eurydice. Yeah, and... <laughs>
0: lots of time there, lots of time like, on Midas, uh, lots of time yep. on the Eros and Psyche. We ended up really focusing in on the sailor and the girl sleeps with her mm-hmm. father, you know? Yep. <laughs> that's, that's how, an, that's how an unscripted podcast goes, folks. <laughs>
1: <Yep>. <laughs> but we'd be happy to continue the conversation. So if there are points that we missed out on that you really wanted to talk about, if you love this, there are so many glorious images in this play that provoke responses. So if there's anything that any of you would want to talk about, hit us up on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, email at noscriptpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to continue the conversation with you.
0: And, If you are in a place where you have seen a production of this staged in a pool or you've been in one or you've maybe thought about doing one, We'd love to hear some talks about, you know, the sort of real staging, how you do a pool, what it's like to actually see the play on its feet in a pool. That would be awesome to hear those as well. The other thing that – so, yeah, comment for us. The other thing you could do that would really help us out is sharing this podcast on whatever social media uh, platform you accessed it on. You can listen to the podcast on Podbean and iTunes and Spotify is currently, I think, where we're hosting – And go ahead and just share directly from those platforms if you'd like or share the posts that we do on social media. Help us get the word out so that uh, other theater people can talk about plays because not a lot of us get to see a ton of really high-level professional plays where we live. So talking about high-level scripts is uh, maybe a nice substitute.
1: Absolutely. And read the play. It's a beautiful play. We hope well, it's you a read it. It's a beautiful
0: play to read. It I'm sure is a totally different experience to see it than read it. I don't always think all, all plays are like that, but this play I'm sure is. So, what we've talked about is the experience of reading it and uh, gosh, it'd be a dream of mine someday to have the experience of seeing it somewhere and, gosh, to direct it. Oh, man.
1: <laughs> just just
0: over the moon. <laughs> oh, it would be amazing. It would be amazing. If I ever yes, won indeed. the lottery, I'd put aside some money to, uh, some, probably some pretty serious money to be able to do it to yeah. direct this show. Basically,
1: I have to build a theater that could have a pool in it. <laughs> yeah. Or pay
0: some theater incredibly high flood insurance.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. Well, we will see you online and we'll see you again next week with another episode of No Script. Until then, I am Jackson Nikolai. And
0: I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. Bye.
1: Oh, wow. I'm blanking. What's the God of Death's name? It's Hades. Hades. <laughs> it is Hades. <laughs> it's the place and the person. Uh-huh. <laughs>